You are tuned to Community Radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's Thursday, March 11th, 2021. I'm Claudio Mendoza, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Tonight, following NPR News headlines and the California Report, we'll look at regional headlines and the weather. Then, we'll listen to Hospitality House's Needs of the Week, followed by Bravehearts. This week, we hear part two of an interview with Paul Cogley, Executive Director of Sierra Roots. We close tonight's newscast with a commentary by Molly Fisk. For their support of KVMR, we thank Craig Johnson Plumbing, serving Nevada and Placer counties since 2004. Now partnered with Clearwater and Filtration, providing water testing services, treatment recommendations, home filtration system design, and existing equipment evaluation. Information at clearwaterandfiltration.com. Here are tonight's NPR News headlines. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden at this hour is set to deliver his first primetime address to the nation since taking office. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports his speech comes as the U.S. marks one year since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. President Biden says he will address the sacrifices that Americans have made over the last year and talk about what comes next. Biden is set to announce that he'll direct states to make vaccines for COVID-19 available to every adult by May 1st. Biden's speech comes just hours after he signed his nearly $2 trillion coronavirus relief bill into law, which he had strongly pushed during his first 50 days in office. The measure includes billions of dollars for vaccine distribution and another round of stimulus checks to Americans who qualify. The president will kick off a nationwide tour next week to tout the bill, the first major legislative accomplishment of his administration. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The White House, meanwhile, says those $1,400 direct payments going out to many Americans under the just-signed American Rescue Plan will start showing up in bank accounts as soon as this weekend. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki saying the government will begin making direct deposits. She says payments will continue for the next several weeks. Measures signed by the president today also includes money to help distribute coronavirus vaccines and funding for homeowners, renters, schools, and state and local governments to help them recover from the coronavirus pandemic. In New York, state lawmakers are starting an investigation into allegations of sexual misconduct by Governor Andrew Cuomo that could lead to an impeachment vote. The move comes after the latest accusation of inappropriate and potentially unlawful sexual conduct by Cuomo, which was referred to the local police department in the state capital of Albany. NPR's Hansi Larong reports. According to a report by the Times Union in Albany, an unnamed woman who currently works for New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has accused Cuomo of aggressively groping her under her blouse. She said she'd been summoned to the executive mansion supposedly to help the governor with his phone. After the news report was released Wednesday, the governor's acting counsel, Beth Garvey, reported the alleged incident to the Albany Police Department. In a statement, Garvey says state policy requires agencies to inform local police about allegations of physical contact, even if the accusers choose not to do so. Garvey says the accuser's attorney confirmed she did not want to make a report. 
Anzi Luang, NPR News, New York. Cuomo has denied the allegations. Supreme Court, in response to a request by the Biden administration, says it will call off upcoming arguments over a Trump administration plan to remake Medicaid by requiring recipients to work. The court had been slated to take up the case later this month. However, the Biden administration decided that work requirements aren't necessarily part of Medicaid's requirement, providing health care to lower-income people. Stocks continued their broad run-up. The Dow gained 188 points. The Nasdaq rose 329 points today. This is NPR. In Oregon, the state's prison system has announced it's offered COVID-19 vaccines to all inmates. As Oregon Public Broadcasting's Conrad Wilson explains, 69% of those in custody have received at least one dose. More than 9,000 inmates have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. That's one of the fastest and broadest vaccine rollouts in the country for those behind bars. Corinne Kendrick is deputy director of the ACLU's National Prison Project. I'm not aware of any other state that has reached 100 percent in terms of offering the vaccine to the people in the prisons. Kendrick says California, Virginia and Massachusetts have also offered vaccines to large percentages of prison inmates. Oregon health officials only acted after a federal judge ruled last month that inmates must be treated like others in congregate settings. That made vaccines immediately available to those in prison. For NPR News, I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland. A combination of cold weather, a decline in seagrass, and contaminated waterways is all shaping up to make this one of the deadliest years on record for manatees. The giant slow-moving creatures often seen in Florida waterways are dying at a rate nearly five times the five-year average, with 432 manatee deaths this year between January 1st and March 5th. Last year, the state recorded 637 manatee deaths for the entire year. Officials say many of the deaths are occurring along the Indian River, a common warm water gathering place for the animals. Crude oil futures prices followed stocks higher today, oil up $1.58 a barrel to end the session at 66.02 a barrel in New York. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This is the California Report, and I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. We're going to start this morning talking about leadership of schools, specifically in the San Francisco Unified School District. It's had its share of controversies recently, most notably a debate about whether schools should be renamed. But just as it gets ready to restart in-person classroom instruction for students, San Francisco School Superintendent Vincent Matthews has announced he'll be retiring. The president of the San Francisco Board of Education says the board plans to work with Matthews on a transition plan. KQED's Vanessa Rancano has more. Matthews has not said why he's leaving, only that he wants to give new school board members a chance to pick a successor who is aligned with their approach. Parent Cooper Marcus is critical of how Matthews has handled the school reopening process. I guess in some ways I'm grateful for this change uh, because now we have the opportunity to get the right leadership because clearly we didn't have it recently. Parent Amanda Kahn-Fried is critical of Matthews, too, but wonders who will be willing to take over a district mired in controversy. I'd like to see this as an opportunity, and yet I don't know what kind of leader would step into the situation we have in San Francisco right now. I'm just very, very worried. The president of the San Francisco Teachers Union also recently announced she won't seek re-election after her term ends this summer. For the California Report, I'm Vanessa Rancaño. 
And even as the school superintendent announces his retirement, there's a push to change how members of the San Francisco School Board are selected. It's part of a wider national debate over how members of school boards should get their jobs. With more, here's KQED's Guy Maserati. Elementary school kids in San Francisco could be back in classrooms in April, but parent Jennifer Butterfoss says she won't be forgiving the school board for spending months on issues not related to reopening. The disastrous effects of this current board is going to be felt by our city for generations to come. This week, Butterfoss announced a ballot measure campaign to give city officials, not voters, the power to pick school board members in the future. It's clear that our current system is failing. By and large, frustrated parents in California argued that their elected boards are prioritizing the safety of teachers over the well-being of students. And that perceived imbalance can be traced back half a century. I think the influence of uh, the California Teachers Association on local school board elections has increased uh, over the years. Gary Hart, the former California Secretary of Education, says before the 1970s, it was a lot easier for school boards to tax local citizens and raise money for local education. So business-friendly candidates naturally pursued seats on the board to balance those in favor of more taxes and spending. But in the 70s, a series of court decisions and ballot measures moved school spending power to the state legislature. So school boards no longer had much overall control of their school budgets. Once Sacramento took over school spending, Hart says more moderate local leaders stopped paying attention to the school board. As a result of that, I think uh, there was a diminishment of civic leaders serving on school boards. Supporters of school board reform say reopenings have happened faster in New York and Chicago, where the mayor happens to control the board. But Troy Flint with the California School Boards Association says it's a bad idea to appoint school board members. He says less democracy will mean less accountability. There's nobody who regular members of the public have access to uh, the way they do uh, to school board members. And in recent years, voters have actually opted for more control of school boards, moving to elect members by geographic area in districts like San Diego. Larry Tramatola, a political strategist known for his work on school issues, says ultimately voters have conflicting feelings. People would like to have the school board stuff be more competent and represent people. On the other hand, they like that their vote matters more in a district election. Where school board members are elected by basically small neighborhoods. So it's often difficult to find quality people, experienced, knowledgeable, to run for these seats. But Tramatola says it's no guarantee a switch to appointments will lead to any more qualified candidates raising their hand. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured. Open 24 hours a day, every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone, everywhere and College Futures Foundation, supporting KQED special broadcasts from college campuses and other higher education reporting. Learn more at collegefutures.org.
And turning to reopenings, Governor Gavin Newsom has confirmed that Los Angeles County will move out of the state's most restrictive purple tier by tomorrow, when the state is expected to reach its goal of administering 2 million COVID-19 vaccine doses in hard-hit communities. That milestone will trigger changes to the state's blueprint for reopening, allowing counties to reopen faster. Here's L.A. County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer. We are working uh, with the Board of Supervisors and all of our sectors to plan for uh, what will be a sensible and safe reopening as permitted uh, by the state, but as appropriate for our county. L.A. County is expected to release its operating guidelines for businesses later today, but it's still unclear if officials will allow restaurants to reopen for indoor dining at 25 percent capacity. Two supervisors, Janice Hahn and Catherine Barger, want the county to align itself with state guidelines to avoid any confusion. And on Monday, millions more Californians will become eligible to get the free COVID-19 vaccine. As KPCC's Jackie Fortier reports, that includes people with developmental disabilities. For months, proving eligibility at vaccine sites has been a struggle. People who qualify often have to track down the necessary paperwork on their own. The state is trying to change that. It's requiring California's regional centers, those are nonprofits that help people with disabilities, to send their clients personalized letters they can use to prove their eligibility. Regional centers are also being directed to reach out to their clients online, by phone or in person, to give them information on how to make an appointment, where to get vaccinated, and to answer any other questions they might have. Starting Monday, the state will also prioritize people who are immunocompromised with specific conditions like cancer or heart disease, but it hasn't said what documentation they'll need to show. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. And that's the California Report for Thursday, March 11th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in LA. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. The union is reporting that Nevada County recorded 16 new coronavirus cases today, making the total number of cases 4,086. Western Nevada County has reached 2,947 cases, while the eastern part of the county total has reached 1,139. New COVID-19 vaccination appointments for the Nevada County Public Health Department's Whispering Pines Clinic in Grass Valley, will become available for scheduling tomorrow, March 12th, at noon. You can schedule an appointment on myturn.ca.gov. Nevada County is currently in Phase 1B, and officials are focused on those 65 and older in that phase. And now for regional weather. In the Nevada City and Grass Valley area, tonight mostly clear with a low around 33. Friday will be sunny with a high near 58. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, a cold storm will continue to impact the region. Tonight, a 20% chance of snow showers before 10 p.m., although Friday should be sunny with a high near 40. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight mostly clear with a low around 37. Friday will be sunny with a high near 68. Next up, Hospitality House's Needs for the Week, followed by this week's Bravehearts, part two of an interview with Paul Cogley, 
Executive Director of Sierra Roots. Hospitality House is a year-round emergency homeless shelter for the general homeless community in Nevada County. And since the onset of the pandemic, we've shifted into a 24-7 operation, working in partnership with multiple agencies around town in a collective effort to help as many people as possible in crisis. I'm Christina Bkarian, Marketing and Development Specialist at Hospitality House. And the needs of the shelter for this week are PPE masks and gloves. Please keep donating these. New pillows, twin-size blankets, bottled water, hand warmers, Alka-Seltzer, travel bags and backpacks, headphones, earbuds, brushes, combs and hair ties, toilet paper, paper towels, men and women's winter gloves, men's jeans sizes 30 to 36, 8-ounce paper coffee cups, please no lids or styrofoam or plastic cups, women's underwear sizes small, medium, and large, men and women's sweatpants sizes medium, large, extra large, and 2XL, Ensure and boost drinks for guests undergoing chemo and radiation treatments. Please drop off urgent items or mail them to Utah's Place located in Brunswick Basin past the DMV at 1262 Sutton Way in Grass Valley. For a tax receipt, please ring the doorbell and wait for someone to come outside to assist you. We greatly appreciate the community's help at such times of uncertainty. In the words of Utah Phillips, if we all stick together, we'll all get what we need. Thank you. Welcome to this edition of Brave Hearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Brave Hearts. everybody to another episode of Brave Hearts. I am sitting here in the Sierra Roots office with Paul Cogley and it's really good to have you here Paul. Well thanks for having me. Very recently you were heading up this program called the Hearth Program. I guess that's an acronym is that right? It, it is, but please don't ask me okay. what it is. But it's a, hearth says it all, though. I yeah, think the word hearth. hearth. And so the hearth program was a program that had homeless people get some shelter at the Northern Queen Motel. And you were overseeing that whole program. So can you just outline how the program worked for people that were really not aware that it was even happening? The genesis of it came from the response by the Nevada County to the COVID situation, and also an important case that happened last December, which was called shorthand is the Boise case. The Boise case does affect how law enforcement deals with, with the homeless. The, the judge in that case basically said you cannot arrest somebody for being on the streets assuming they have a legal place to go. I'm, I'm giving you some background on this. Yeah. That resulted in the Sugarloaf operation when the city of Nevada City wanted to remove people from their property 
on Sugarloaf Mountain due to complaints and reasonable fears of the neighbors, fire dangers, and so forth. So from that operation, they offered the homeless people a legal place to go, which was a motel for 30 days. And that grew into being a program in where the homeless people that had been campers who were transitioning out of camping met with case managers and worked on plans to find permanent homes or at least do the preliminary things they needed to do in order to set themselves up for, for that. Uh, medical needs, driver's licenses, really IDs, those type of things. It's also a response to COVID because non-congruent care was not an option in the COVID era. So the motel rooms became, became uh, something that, that the county looked real close at. After Sugarloaf operation, which began in June and, and went on midway through July, the county then had some additional CARES money for the COVID homelessness situation in, in, during the COVID era, and thus came Hearth. Hearth was a way to build upon the experience of Sugarloaf operation. Before we get into the Hearth experience, what came out of that? What were the learnings that came out of the Sugarloaf experiment? Many things came out of that. For one thing, it was an amazing thing to see how coming out of the stress and trauma of camping and homelessness to a motel room, you have a place that's yours again. It has an amazing effect. It's pretty uh, intuitive that you would start relaxing and you would start feeling more at ease with yourself and also you would start thinking about your future thinking about what comes next and what can I do to help myself that's a real key thing I heard from one Sugarloaf participant who said you know for two years I was thinking of going into rehab while I was camping but it was only while I was at the motel that I decided this is the time to get it done and so that decision was made. He went into rehab. So it inspired people to move into things that maybe they thought about but just didn't have the wherewithal, the stamina. I really can't imagine what it's like to camp out mm -hmm. every night. So now tell us about the Hearth program. It started on November 2nd. It lasted for 60 days, which was uh, pretty much towards the end of the year. And January 1st was when it was officially closed. Pierre Roots was the manager, also participating in very big ways was the Nevada County's home team of case managers and the hospitality house case manager folks, and hospitality house provided the meals, and we had a special room we called the resource room so that the participants could engage with case managers. And it became quite a, uh, as you can see, six, it was 60 days, twice as long as Sugarloaf. One of the lessons of Sugarloaf was it felt like they were just getting started when it was over as far as getting the work done. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities please visit calhum.org. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. The commentaries I bring you every Thursday have always been called observations from a working poet, but I haven't spent a lot of time reading you poems by me or anyone else. Since poems have helped soothe so many of us during the pandemic, and because it's Women's History Month, and because there are fabulous voices we should all know about, 
I'm trying to mend my evil ways. Here are two poems by Amy Nazuka Matadal, who's part of the Sierra Poetry Festival next month. Though she can't visit Nevada County in person, she'll be here via Zoom. Born in Chicago, her heritage is Philippine and South Indian. She's a professor at the University of Mississippi. There's a casual, conversational aspect to her work that I love. You could be eavesdropping on her at the next table in a cafe. It's not that her work isn't seriously poetic and carefully made. Don't be fooled. But it's also available to us 21st century American listeners in a comforting, familiar way. I'll post these on KVMR's Facebook page so you can read them a second time. This Sugar When you ask me to split a dessert with you, I wince because I don't like to share my restaurant food, and there is the matter of who pays for what. If I don't order a drink and just have a salad, always the person in the group who gobbled steak, a glass of wine, and two appetizers says, let's just split the check equally. But you, you raise your eyebrows when the waitress mentions a brambleberry tart, and maybe so do I. When she places the piping hot pie dish with two funnels of steam and two spoons, you look at me and say, dig in. We have already tasted from each other's lips when we've shared cold glasses before. I'm fairly certain across this table, across the slide of the fork, even the knife we both use, this is how thumbnail-sized coquina clams feel when they tumble and toss into the shoreline from an impending storm, how they gasp and slide their feet, trying to brace themselves, then thwap another wave. And after that tumble, the sunlight glows below you and then above you where it should be. And I wipe my mouth with the pink napkin, and in the folds of that napkin is a lipstick kiss where the kiss should be, never between your neck and shoulder. Our mouths will press only on this sugar, this glaze, and this caramelized topping. Are all the breakups in your poems real? If by real you mean as real as a shark tooth stuck in your heel, the wetness of a finished lollipop stick, the surprise of a thumbtack in your purse, then yes, every last page is true, every nuance, bit and bite. Wait, I have made them up, all of them. And when I say I'm married, it means I married all of them, a whole neighborhood of past loves. Can you imagine the number of bouquets, how many slices of cake? Even now, my husband's plan a great meal for us. One chops up some parsley. One stirs a bubbling pot on the stove. One changes the baby, and one sleeps in a fat chair. One flips through the newspaper. Another whistles while he shaves in the shower. And every single one of them wonders what time I am coming home. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City 
and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday from 6 to 6.30 p.m. Want to hear it again? You can do so on our webpage, kvmr.org. While you're there, take our survey. It'll help us serve you better. Stay tuned. The Climate Report with Martin Webb is next, followed at 7 p.m. by Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. I'm Claudio Mendoza. Have a good evening.